You're listening to episode 98 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Well, we're closing in on episode 100 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, and over the past few weeks, I've been asking if the show has been of value to you, if you found it helpful in any way, I'd love to be able to hear how. Uh, it's pretty simple. You can go to pastorwriter.com slash message, and by clicking record either on your phone or a laptop, you can leave a brief audio message about how the show has impacted you, how it's impacting your ministry, your reading, even your writing. I've been receiving several of those and have just found them a real joy. One participant will be randomly selected to win a pair of Apple AirPods in the weeks to come. So I thought I might share one of those audio messages with you. Hey, Chase, it's Benjamin Verbicek. I'm a pastor and writer in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I'm profoundly thankful for your show, um, The Pastor Writer. And I know it must take tons of effort to recruit the the guests you have on the show, to read their books, to interview them, to, to edit your podcast, and to promote it out there for the world and for writers uh, like us. But I, I really appreciate all the hard work you put into it, whether it's introducing us to new authors or whether it's uh, doing a deeper dive with the established authors we all know. All of it has been helpful. It's like diesel fuel. I've, I've told you that before, but I'll say it now here more publicly. Um, you know, you pour gasoline on a bonfire, it's going to just flame up quickly. And, and there's a helpfulness to, you know, gasoline at times type, you know, binge adrenaline fueled monster energy type, type uh, writing fits. But, but what I think I need, and I think what many writers need, is that slow burn over um, a lifetime of, of growing in the craft and being obedient to the Lord uh, to use... Um, the talents and skills he's given us, but then to, to, to grow those. And especially for writers, if they're anything like me, they're shoehorning writing into what is an already full life of, of at least for me, it's a ministry here at a church and uh, being a dad and a, and, a, and a husband. And so I'm thankful for what you do. And I'm thankful you've had a hundred episodes and I hope you have a hundred more. Keep it up. Well, special thanks to Benjamin Verbacek for sharing that. Uh, he actually has been on the podcast before as a guest. You can check out that episode and check out his work. And if you're still thinking about it, there's still time. I'd love to hear your thoughts. PastorWriter.com slash message. Today, I've got an episode with just me. I've been thinking and writing a lot recently about voice and thought I might share some of those thoughts with you. As always, thanks for listening. My son Will is five, and my daughter Charlotte just turned three. One of their favorite games is to endlessly repeat whatever my wife and I are saying. My daughter will even try to imitate my deeper voice when she does it. Every kid pretty much plays that game, and mimicking is actually a necessary part of growing up. As Carrie Schreier, writing for the Michigan State University, put it, Infants love to copy facial expressions. In fact, babies as young as just a few hours old can copy an adult who sticks out their tongue. If you smile, they will try to smile back. As babies get older, they get even better at copying our actions. Holding the phone like you do, brushing your hair, mimicking your actions, and copying your words and tone of voice. Honestly, I find that to be a little bit terrifying. What comes out of my mouth soon comes out of theirs, and watching my son grow up is strangely like looking at some sort of time machine mirror. I constantly catch these glimpses of myself and what he's saying and doing. You come to realize just how much you shape their earliest self-identity. 
But eventually, my son and daughter will learn their own voice, their own vocabulary and experiences and personality and traits. There will always be something of our family there, a foundation beneath them. But parents want to see their kids grow into their own voice and lives. What's cute at three seems stunted if it's still the same at 23. We often talk about voice when we describe the way a person writes or speaks. It's more than just the sound of vibrating vocal cords. We're speaking about the uniqueness of that person's perspective and the way in which they express themselves and the truth. Voice is something we all recognize and love about our favorite writers and preachers. But after almost 100 interviews on this podcast with all sorts of writers, I've met very few of them who actually enjoy questions or conversations about voice. When I ask about voice, it's like I'm asking about what they're wearing. It's strangely too personal, and it feels awkward for me, too. As critical as it is, having a unique voice, it still sounds superficial to talk about. Early on as a writer, and even as a pastor, I thought a lot about it. What I wanted to sound like, what I wanted to write like, what kind of writer or preacher I wanted to be. Eventually, though, you come to realize that a voice is not something that you can actually construct, but something which must be uncovered. Something there, but too often shuffled to the background, forced out by more pressing expectations and insecurities. What I mean is this. The work of cultivating voice is really a process of subtraction, not addition. You must get all of the other stuff out of the way to discover it. What kind of stuff is probably the question you're asking. Well, let me give you three examples. First, one of the earliest attempts at discovering your voice is the mimicking of your idols. You try to sound like the voices which inspired you to take up the task. It's similar to the child trying to be like their parent, sounding and mimicking what they see in front of them. It is what it is, and to some degree, at least at the beginning, I think it may be unavoidable. Young preachers tend to sound like the preachers they have been listening to, and writers often read like those authors that have been most influential in their reading. I think most of us are aware of this initial trap. We find ourselves mimicking, and most, through a process of time, grow out of it. Honestly, I'm not sure it can be entirely avoided, at least not at the start. Like the child that learns the basics from their parents that raise them, those who inspire us to the task usually form our first attempts at it. It only becomes a problem when we can't recognize we're doing it anymore and when we refuse to move on. But that first idol mimicking usually gives way to another, mimicking the crowd. Here is where I think we find a significant number of writers and preachers stuck. Having made it past the obvious mimicking of our heroes, now feeling wobbly on our own two feet, we seek out the approval of a crowd, a denomination, a pastor's group, a writer's group, a theological subculture. We begin to write and preach as a means of earning our spot and their respect. This can be a far more difficult trap to avoid. We write what we are expected to and what we know will be accepted. It's made more difficult to avoid because the problem is not that we have said something wrong. We have simply said it for the wrong reasons. We're doing it to be something, to fit into something, to convince someone else of something, that we're something. We write to be published by our favorite sites, and we hope to be retweeted by the influencers of that community. It's the recognition and acceptance that passes for truth and their affirmation that gives us value. It's not just wrong for what it covers up, but also because it produces poor writing. 
and poor preaching, what we might abstractly call content, truth, but with very little life or honesty in it. I don't want to be too critical here. I think this can be another necessary stage by which we learn to articulate what is true, but the trap is to need it past its actual necessity. For those who do manage to recognize this impulse, there's yet another trap that soon awaits, the siren call of uniqueness. When the crowd leaves us discontent, we swing to the other extreme. We will be known for being unique. It is easy to only write what we imagine no one else would, to say things in such a way as they have never been said. We want an entirely new, and we imagine, different desire from those seeking the approval of the crowd. We want to be impossible to fit into any box. In a public atmosphere characterized by intense polarization and tribalism, it's easy to imagine that uniqueness is the means by which we rise above it all. We hope to find a voice which no one else has. We end up feeling most successful when people aren't quite sure what to do with us. I see and hear these attempts all across my social feeds every day. They get plenty of clicks and shares, but I think fall short of that thing that we're actually looking for. You know how trying to dress unique inevitably leads to yet another cliche and usually showing up somewhere dressed just like other people. The pursuit of uniqueness may be the most dangerous of all, for it has no boundaries by which to rescue us from our own insecurities and our own desperate searching. So where do we go to cultivate this sense of voice, who we are as a writer or preacher? Well, maybe a person's voice can't actually be found by looking for it. Frankly, finding your voice has always struck me as a maudlin-sounding idea anyways, as if you could go hiking through the woods and suddenly stumble upon a new way of talking. I've never been convinced that it is out there. Even if you did somehow run into that unique voice which was destined for you, I'm not sure you could even recognize it. You know how in those old home movies you never sound like you hear yourself in your own head. Maybe voice is the byproduct of an entirely different kind of work and search. E.B. White once wrote that writing is an act of faith, not a trick of grammar. It's one of my favorite quotes. Your voice, writing or preaching, is not something you can learn or craft or stumble upon. Like so many of the great things in life, if you aim directly at it, you'll miss it altogether. There are things which you cannot reach for to obtain. There are things which can only be produced as a byproduct of a more important work. I'm always drawn to Lewis's definition of humility as an example. Lewis wrote, Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You can actively attempt to think less of yourself. You can dwell on all of your failures and all of your shortcomings, but it won't produce humility. In fact, it can trick you into an even more insidious form of pride which thinks itself humble. Lewis was right. True humility just eventually finds less interest in itself. And that is not an active process. Growing bored is the opposite experience of being active. But growing bored with yourself is the only path that leads to actual humility. So something else must catch your attention. True humility is the byproduct of a far more interesting reality which pulls your attention from yourself to it. So too, I think it is with a writer's voice. The more you care and search and focus, the less you possess it. But what you can do is abandon your false attempts at it. Call off the hunt, your idols, the crowd, your own uniqueness. 
what you can do is find a kind of honesty and maturity and interest that produces a voice worth listening to. Here's how Anne Lamont described that work. You can't get to any of these truths by sitting in a field smiling, avoiding your anger and damage and grief. Your anger and damage and grief are the way to truth. You don't have truth to express unless you have gone into those rooms and closets and woods and abysses that you were told not to go into. When we have gone in and looked around for a while, just breathing and finally taking it in, then we will be able to speak in our own voice and to stay in the present moment. Some will think that what I'm describing here is a kind of navel-gazing by which we close our eyes and hum and try to connect with a deeper sense of who we each individually are. I wish it was really that easy. What Lamont is suggesting is not self-indulgent narcissism, but bare, raw, and courageous self-honesty. What the psalmist David described in Psalm 78 as integrity of heart, wholeness, an inventorying of all of who you are, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help us God. David is a great example of it. One way to read the David story is to pay attention to the garments David is constantly being tempted by. Saul's armor, Jonathan's cloak, Goliath's sword, his own wife's mocking at his appearance, dancing before the ark. David was called to the throne in a world dominated by the image of Saul, and Saul had been made king precisely for his image. He was tall and striking in appearance, everything Israel was looking for in a king. And Saul constantly suffered under the weight of that appearance and the expectation of trying to keep it. David would face those same expectations, but when he was at his best, he would recognize the trap. Before David stepped onto Goliath's field of battle, Saul had insisted that he be dressed in his royal bronze armor. David put it on, but only for long enough to take it off. His reason? Well, 1 Samuel 17 says, David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. It wasn't the armor's fit or that it cramped David's style. He hadn't tested them. It wasn't what he knew. What he knew was that a sling and a staff had been enough to face lions and bears. What was Goliath? What has always struck me about David was his disinterest in appearance. He was not intimidated by Goliath's size, nor was he intimidated by Saul's expectations. He felt no pressure to conform to the expectations of that image. It was not insecurity or desperation that drew him onto the battlefield, and he wasn't hoping to leverage the moment for his own PR. David was compelled by a vision of God's power and a confidence shaped by what he had lived and practiced and knew. David wasn't writing or preaching, but the simplicity of his words and actions. I cannot go in these, for I have not tested them, so David put them off. There's a voice in those words, which has echoed through generations and defined the character of who David was. This is what I think even writers like Ernest Hemingway was getting at in his all-too-often-quoted line, all you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence that you know. Now, Hemingway wrote more than one sentence in his literary career, but he recognized how hard it can be to hold on to truth. Our insecurities, our wounds, and our need for acceptance send us scurrying back under the rock to hide, desperately buying up bronze armor and hoping to pull off the image of confidence. 
We hide behind the image of a warrior, a writer, a preacher, mimicking to keep from having to face the truth of who we are, trying to avoid that real calling of writing one true sentence. That pressure never lets up. Every word is a choice to betray what is true and cloak ourselves in pretense. Every word a test of faith. Do you see what E.B. Wright was saying? It's not a trick of grammar. That's the easy part. It's an act of faith, speaking what is true, writing with integrity, fighting for an honest sentence, and constantly standing our ground against the pressure to fake it, throwing acceptance and recognition to the wind and allowing our attention to be fixed solely on him for which we have taken up this work. In the end, it really isn't about writing at all, is it? It's about living. The greatest writers are those who manage to recognize and say things which we have all felt but lacked the time and interest or courage to wrestle down and pin to the paper. The greatest writers are those who pay attention to life. Oh, I know there are plenty of writers who don't do this. There are plenty who write for profit and approval and do it quite successfully. And not all writing need plumb the depths of humanity, but some should. And it's to these endeavors that voice becomes a sacred calling. If there is anything that can finally be said about doing it, the actual work of it, it is to care far more about something than being a writer. To care far more about something than being a preacher. It is to care deeply about these crafts only because they become the means by which we draw light upon the thing which we find far more interesting than the work itself. For those of us writing in service to his kingdom, it is Christ, the truest sentence that I can write. Like humility, we discover our best voice when we think about it least. We discover it when we stretch all of our abilities towards a goal higher and better than ourselves. So how do we do it? Well, go write, confess, pray, lay down your idols, seek not their approval but his, give up on being unique or recognized or believing that being better will make you feel better. Find something true to say, the thing you know above all else. Test it, prove it, submit it to Christ, and then say it. Let me give you one last way. In the words of Annie Dillard, one of our greatest of writers, why do you never find anything written about that idiosyncratic thought you advert to, about your fascination with something no one else understands? Because it is up to you. There is something you find interesting for a reason hard to explain. It is hard to explain because you have never read it on any page. There you begin. You were made and sent here to give voice to this, your own astonishment. The most demanding part of living a lifetime as an artist is the strict discipline of forcing oneself to work steadfastly along the nerve of one's own most intimate sensitivity. Anne Truitt, the sculptor, said this. Thoreau said it another way. Know your own bone. Pursue, keep up with, circle round, and round your life. Know your own bone, gnaw at it, bury it, unearth it, and gnaw at it still. The best way to voice is to find something far more important than writing or preaching and employ all of the ability that you possess to say that simple truth. One true sentence.
As always, you can find information about today's show by going to pastorwriter.com slash 98. Also, if you've been enjoying the podcast, uh, would you consider sharing it with a friend? Just one person who might find this episode beneficial. Whether they're a writer or a preacher, maybe you would consider sharing it with just one person. Also, if you haven't already, go to pastorwriter.com slash message and leave me an audio review of how the podcast has been beneficial. Again, I'll be selecting one of those from random to win a pair of Apple AirPods. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.